Whether you need timely, I can't wait another second care, or want I can go nights, weekends, and holidays convenience, Northwell Health Go Health Urgent Care is your go-to for trusted care in the neighborhood. From I think it's broken pains to I can't get out of bed illnesses, the caring Northwell Health Go Health Urgent Care providers and staff will get you feeling better faster all year long. Learn more, save your spot, or walk into a nearby Northwell Health Go Health Urgent Care Center today. Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. We are so grateful that you spend some time with us. It's much appreciated. We've got the trial coming up of Alec Murdoch. I also want to thank the folks at Court TV who... For some reason, continue to have me on. Uh, Vinny and Closing Arguments on Court TV, making a few appearances lately. Appreciate that. We appreciate your feedback. And you can reach out to us, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, and Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. Matt Harris and Seton Tucker. That's who we are. So at the time we're recording this episode, we are less than two weeks away from the start of Alec Murdoch's murder trial, which has begun to set on January 23rd. And speaking of Court TV, it has been announced that they will be exclusively broadcasting from the courtroom. Uh, That footage will be broadcast live, but will also be available to other media outlets. So if any media outlet is using it, this is what they do in most of these cases, they have one organization take the feed, run the feed, and then other people can use it as well. And it has been announced that the media and public are not allowed to take into the courtroom cell phones, cameras, laptops, or other digital devices such as Apple Watches. And that brings us to our legal analyst. He's a former prosecutor and a former defense attorney. He's John Snyder. Hello, John. Hello. All right, Seton, let's uh, start it off with uh, John Snyder. Okay, let's go straight into jury selection. There have been reports that jury selection will take up to two days, which is exactly what we saw in the Russell Lafitte trial. Uh, Any predictions on how long you think jury selection will take in the murder trial? I would expect it to take up to a week. You were trying somebody for the potential outcome of life in prison. You do not want to rush through jury selection. And so courts tend to give much more time for jury selection in a murder case because instead of asking somebody, are you comfortable sending someone to jail for a year? You're asking someone, are you comfortable sending them to prison for the rest of their natural life? We'll get into some of the specific questions that were on the juror questionnaire, but John, how will the jury selection process work? So the jury, they'll have the questionnaires then the clerk will start drawing names. It is, it is completely random. It is in no way connected to the responses on the juror forms. The only thing that the juror forms are called for beforehand might be somebody's you know, legally blind or legally deaf and, and they can't serve as a juror. But, but otherwise, uh, everybody that's on the list will be called into juror assembly room and then they'll get pulled into the courtroom and the judge will will have them take a seat and how many jurors will each side be able to strike do you think 
it will be at least six. Six. And then we will see some wrangling for cause. And so for cause would be uh, they they ask you to get on and you're you come to court dressed in a grim reaper outfit. <laughs> okay. And yeah. kind of this like, oh, if you're charged with a crime, you're guilty. Um, and that won't count as one of their strikes. That'll just be. That uh, won't uh, count as one of their strikes. That's yeah. correct. Okay. Reportedly, hundreds of people have been called as potential jurors. Will they say, okay, the first 150 come day one? Or how, how do they work that? It depends. But. You know, whatever they have the space for, there's no way you're going to cull through 150 in the first day. So I I do think they might stagger them. Well, and as of this recording, we don't have a decision from Judge Newman as to whether the public or media will be allowed in the courtroom for jury selection. Fitz News released the questions that are on the juror questionnaire. John, is there anything that you find unique or out of line or interesting in this uh, report? When you look through these questions, I I think they're kind of sound questions you would want to ask in in any kind of major criminal trial because what what the lawyers are trying to find out is, is there some implicit unspoken bias in your background that you may not come to the stand and say that, you have a blue lives matter or black lives matter, or therefore you have a preset opinion about law enforcement. You don't want to be rude to these people that'll be deciding your client's fate. You ask these questions like, Hey, what kind of shows do you watch? And it, and it all is kind of to warm, warm up the juror to, to open up maybe a little bit more about themselves than they naturally would. One of the things that they did ask about was media consumption, which is similar to what we saw in the Russell Lafitte juror questionnaire. But they also asked about watching true crime shows like Dateline or 48 Hours and other shows like CSI. Is it normal to ask about those shows? That's actually maybe one of the most standard questions because the way that crimes are covered in an hour television show is not any way related to reality in that we don't go from murder to uh, 10 minutes later arrest to conviction. The timeline that TV sort of makes people think of is not accurate. And so you, you would say, okay, I mean, I remember I ask this all the time, like, all right, now, you all understand that everybody here understand there's a difference between what you see on on CSI and what a real case is. And and, you know, I'd make a joke about there are no supermodels in the lab with backlit uh, <laughs> instrumentation doing the testing like that's just that's CSI. That's not reality. But people do are impacted by the by the media they consume. So so that's why. The, the both the defense lawyer and the prosecutor is going to ask because you might have an unfair assumption about how law enforcement should do things. And so you're really trying to nail down the, are you going to apply the law as the judge gives it to the facts that are provided in court? So you say they would ask the question when they were talking to jurors, but this is actually on the juror form. Why is that? 
I think what this is doing is trying to speed it up. So yeah. if I get to, oh, Mr. Harris, okay, I see that you like Mystery Theater 3000 and uh, American Greed. Okay, well, talk. tell me about what you like about those shows. Okay. Uh, you, you know, then I can, I can start to develop your personality through your answers. And, and if you can hear the excitement, the jury selection is my favorite part of all parts of a trial. It is the most interesting and fascinating process of, I think, our legal system. Well, they did also ask for lists of what television shows, podcasts, social media that you're receiving information from about this case. And they say impact of influence, and they say dismissed. Right. Uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, there has also been a lot of chatter about the ability to find impartial jurors in Colleton County. And whether jurors could potentially be influenced by the Murdoch name. John, do you have any thoughts on the ability to find an impartial jury in Colleton County? I think you can. I mean, impartial does not mean devoid of opinion. It means the ability to set aside your opinion to follow the instructions from the judge. And so I do believe it is possible for them to find 12 people plus two alternates that can do exactly what the judge has asked them to do. One of the things they do is they, they want to list, they want you to find out from the jurors, groups and organizations they belong to, volunteer time, donate money. Do they give to certain churches? Are they members of churches? They also asked about membership of fraternity and sororities. They probably want to know if it's mentioned sporting. So I think that implies a few things. One is hunting and another might be even be a USC Gamecock fan because Alec played there back in the day and Alec's family, all huge Gamecock fans, just like you are, Seton. Yep. And one of the reasons you ask that is people may not, they might rush through the questionnaire, kind of like how people do with the terms and services agreement when they're <laughs> signing up for something on the internet. And so you want to go back and ask these questions because it may be you don't remember such and such, but what you don't want to have happen is that midway through the trial, you remember that your 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 ex-brother-in-law used to be a police officer, and oh. he told you this story one time. And so that's that's why they asked all these questions, because the, the lawyer's trying to find the possible connection between you and the the decision making that that the judge is going to ask you to make. You want to cool the herd to make sure you get people that aren't, they don't have 18 people in their family that are all police officers. It's like, well, uh, I mean, as a prosecutor, absolutely you want them, <laughs> but, but, but the defense lawyer, you want to ask that. And you, <laughs> all the time people might, they might leave out the fact like, oh yeah, my brother-in-law is so-and-so. Okay. Yeah. Well, why didn't you write that on the questionnaire? Oh, I didn't really understand the question. Okay. Well, that, so that's why, that's why I, I like that you do the questionnaire and then that gives kind of a, a background for the lawyers to start digging in on. Well, you mentioned something earlier that caught my attention. Sometimes you're drilling down to get the potential juror's personality as a prosecutor or defense attorney. And you may work that into something, right? You find out this one guy who's on the bubble, maybe as the jury goes on, you know, he's a USC fan. Maybe you drop something in there, right? Something like that. 
That's right. You wear your garnet and, and black tie <laughs> to jury selection. Like from the defense standpoint, you're hoping you get your guy. We we always had kind of a joking rule about you, you didn't want preachers, teachers, or engineers on your jury because a preacher will always find the good in somebody. Uh, a teacher will, same thing. They, they, they just think things could be better, and an engineer isn't going to listen to any anybody's word for it. They're going to have to go prove it themselves. Interesting. And so you, different personality types, you're, you want to explore all that so that you know that you've got people that are, you are trying to find people that are inclined to your, your case. I mean, that's part of the adversarial side. Oh, you went to UVA? Okay, well, I have my orange and blue tie on today. Jordan, you know, <laughs> ten. Did you notice my tie? I mean, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That, that, go, that goes on. That's part of the wow. part of the process. We also want to mention that Eddie Smith has been listed as a witness by the prosecution. And if you remember, Eddie Smith is called Cousin Eddie. He is the one that was involved with the Labor Day suicide for hire plot where Alec was on the side of the road. He claims he hired Eddie to shoot him so Alec would die and insurance money would go to Buster. That's still being sorted out. Plus, Alec gave checks to Eddie of something, what, over $100,000 or something? Yes, he's been accused of being in cahoots with Alec and running a money laundering scheme. My question to John is the prosecution calling Eddie Smith what do you think the defense will do with this? Well, it, it allows Alex's side to totally cross-examine him and treat him as a hostile witness and, and show his bias, see if he got some plea offer in exchange for his testimony. I mean, they will, they will run him through the grinder like there's nobody's business. That's actually really interesting that you mentioned this plea deal. You know, he reportedly had this polygraph test, and then after he may have indicated some deception on this polygraph test, the plea deal, from what's been reported, was revoked. We don't know yet whether the judge will allow any mention of the polygraph, let alone the results, into the trial. Does this change anything if Eddie is called? I don't think so, and I I don't think, I still don't think the polygraph's coming in. I, I just don't think that's going to be admissible evidence. It, it, the evidence might come in as you gave prior statements that said X, and those proved to be untrue, didn't they? Yes. Well, what other statements did you give that prove that will prove to be untrue? How would this, how is Eddie going to be a a useful witness to either side? I mean, feel credibility is is definitely an issue. He may have unique knowledge consistent with again, hypo, all this is hypothetical, but. Alec called me and asked me to meet him out out of the country house. I told him I couldn't. He said he had some work that I, he had to do, and if he didn't do it, he might need my help doing it also. Yeah, it could be something like that. And then he, he'd say, well, after, after the events, Alec called me and said he needed my help taking care of a problem out here at, at the country house. So your point is well taken. Now, we don't know. We have no idea what Eddie might be saying. So, yes, he's going to be run through the ringer, but we don't know yet what. I would yeah. love to see him. I definitely want to be in court that day for sure. Yes. But remember, of course, just because somebody's on the witness list doesn't mean they'll be called. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to 
be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. So instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. Whether you need timely, I can't wait another second care, or want I can go nights, weekends, and holidays convenience, Northwell Health Go Health Urgent Care is your go-to for trusted care in the neighborhood. From I think it's broken pains to I can't get out of bed illnesses, the caring Northwell Health Go Health Urgent Care providers and staff will get you feeling better faster all year long. Learn more, save your spot, or walk into a nearby Northwell Health Go Health Urgent Care Center today. Well, let's move on to a settlement agreement that several of the victims of the boating accident where Mallory Beach was killed have reached a settlement with Buster Murdoch and Maggie's estate. Buster was named in the lawsuit because he was accused of allowing underage Paul to use his identification. Mark Tinsley actually gave a quote on behalf of the Beach family to the state paper in which he says, the Beach family feels like Buster had suffered enough and it is important to get Buster out of this lawsuit. So they definitely showed some compassion to him. Uh, Maggie was named in the lawsuit because she may have contributed to the accident by allowing Paul to drink and operate the boat. The agreement was reached with Mallory, Beach's estate, Miley Altman, Morgan Dowdy, with the estates of Maggie and Buster. Uh, Connor Cook reached an agreement with Buster. He did not name Maggie's estate in his lawsuit. Uh, Connor Cook, who was Mallory's boyfriend, did not name Maggie's estate or Buster in his lawsuit, so he was not involved in this settlement agreement in any way. The agreement was signed off on by the co-receivers who were appointed to oversee LX Finances and also John Marvin, who was the personal representative for Maggie's estate. Matt, let's run down the numbers. Okay, like two hundred seventy-five grand to the co-receivers, uh, the legal fees two hundred ninety thousand to satisfy outstanding fees from Maggie's estate, about six thousand five hundred or so to Laura Jones, interior designer, twenty-five k because there's an outstanding claim to Palmetto State Bank. You've got a little over twelve grand to John Marvin Murdoch for personal funds he advanced on behalf of the estate in satisfaction of outstanding creditor claim against the estate. Now he is waiving his fee as PR. 100 grand to Joe McCullough as counsel for Connor to release the claim against Buster. Uh, 530 grand to the estate of Buster and an unknown balance to Mark Tinsley as well as Maggie's uh, 2021 Mercedes SUV. Tinsley is able to get that and sell it. Let's start with a listener question from Nancy. 
Nancy asked about the settlement with the Beach family. She says she read an article on Fitz News, and that said the receivership is part of the settlement, but Alec is not. Nancy's a little confused on that. She'd love to hear your explanation, John. How can they reach an agreement with a receivership that doesn't include Alec? Well, the, the receivership is acting in, in place of Alec. So they, they can make the financial decisions related to the release of monies and claims against the, the corpus or the body that is the, the funds. And so the disclaimer by Alec, while that's still kind of under appeal or whatnot, the receivers really are the ones that are making financial decisions at this time for Alex. And we see they're not cheap. I mean, their fees were pretty expensive, 250000 Was that it? 275000 to the co-receivers. For the co-receivers. And there were a lot of legal fees involved. According to Mark Tinsley, it seems as if they're trying to come to some sort of resolution while there's still money to be had. That's right. And so receiverships are uh, a fantastic vehicle but they are not cheap. And a lot of times in, in business disputes, when you know business partners sue each other and they're like, and then a receiver gets appointed, most of the time the re- receiver ends up eating up all the assets that would have been left in a company. They, they're effective and they do their job, but they are they they will eat up whatever money might be there to that the two parties are fighting over. Anything else jump out at you when you see those numbers? John Marvin's advancement of the funds. That's kind of odds and ends bills that, that needed to get paid that were in Maggie's name. And, you know, so all that's actually pretty clear. And it, it seems like this is kind of the final accounting as they close out her estate and, and any of the claims against, against it. All of her estate is, will then be accounted for. It's done. That's right. It's, it'll be a closed estate file. What impact will Ellick's murder trial have on this, if any? I don't think any, I mean, what I see in this settlement is the fact that that everyone is now focused on Parker's. And so the money that could have been gotten from anyone with the last name Murdoch is been gotten. And so now they're going to focus the trial on Parker. So, so it's ironic that the, you, you filed this motion to separate the claim. It was granted, then it was reversed. And now it looks like they'll have settled with almost everybody except for Parker. So in in essence, the only people going to trial uh, will be Parker's. And Alec, right? I mean, he still has his estate. It doesn't seem like he has anything. Right. Uh, And also a lot of the settlement, these numbers hinge on the pending sale of Moselle and uh, that property. So we'll wait on that. And you said there's a hearing coming up? There's a hearing next week, which will actually happen before the start of the murder trial in front of Judge Hall. Uh, So this is all pending his approval and also the approval of the probate court. Uh, Right. I'm going to share this uh, email while John is with us. Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com. This is from Laura, who is an attorney. She says, big fan of the podcast, big fan of John Snyder. He makes your show. You guys are great, but the legal perspective is vital. and He's really good. Uh, Matt, I could not agree more with you talking about the disparagement of Dick Carpootlian. She's referring to the, what I was saying earlier in a podcast or an episode that attacking Dick Carpootlian just for defending Alec Murdoch is unfair. I, you can attack him for other things, but uh, she says, I do defense work. And if 
people were attacking me for doing my job, I'd sue. It really makes me mad when they do this. He has a job to do. Our legal system depends on it. Now, I have disagreed with John's statements as to why prosecutors become defense attorneys. The answer is much more simple. It's not for the love of litigation. It's simply for the significant amount of money that can be made in private practice. Former DAs are absolutely great hires across all areas of the law. Great job. Great job, John. Keep on, keep it on. <laughs> great job, John. We couldn't agree more. Thank you, John. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Love, love doing it and, and can't wait for jury selection. You got it. See you, John. Bye. This past week, we had an article from a local reporter, Michael DeWitt, in which he interviewed the Culleton County Clerk of Court, Rebecca Hill. And they talked a little bit about Walterboro preparing for what may be huge crowds and the biggest thing that Colton County has ever seen. In the article, Hill is quoted as saying, We have kind, compassionate people here who are coming together like never before to let the outside world know that Colton County is not the crime that happened in its jurisdiction. We are much better than that, and we stand together to make our town a safe place to live and for the families to grow and work and play. And on that sentiment, I thought it would be a great idea to bring Sarah Holstein Graves in, who has been on our podcast on several episodes, to kind of go over a little bit of the history of Walterboro and Colleton County. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you? We're fantastic. Let's uh, find out all about Walterboro. Okay, so Walterboro, it's about 20 minutes away from Hampton, so it's pretty close, and uh, a little less than an hour away from Charleston. It was founded in 1783 by two brothers by the last name of Walter. Uh, One of the brothers' daughter had contracted malaria. So as you know, down by the coast, the mosquitoes are terrible in the summer, and malaria was actually a fairly common disease. And so planters started moving towards Walterboro in the summer, and and, uh, some of them actually just stayed there. In the beginning, it was called Hickory Valley because of all the hickory trees that were there. And um, it still has a lot of historic homes that are dating back to the 1800s. So if you do come to town for the trial, it's worth a little drive around the Main Street area to look at some of these beautiful old houses. They were designated the county seat of Colleton County in 1817. And they built the courthouse and the county jail in 1821. What's uh, really cool about the courthouse is it was designed by Robert Mills, who was an architect from Charleston, who designed a lot of very famous buildings. He designed the first Washington Monument in Baltimore, as well as the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. He designed the USC campus. Um, the fireproof building in Charleston, which now houses the South Carolina Historical Society, and uh, probably one of the more famous ones, the old Patent Office building in Washington, D.C., which now houses the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery and the Smithsonian American Art Museum. So he designed that courthouse. It's an absolutely uh, the, beautiful courthouse. It, it really yes. is a beautiful place. In the 1880s, the railroad line was established, and that connected Walterboro with both Columbia and Charleston. So that that made it a little more metropolis-like. This I found super interesting. In the 1930s, they established the airfield, which is where the National Guard has a post now. In 1942, 
um, during World War II, it became the home of the Walterboro Army Airfield, which was a sub-base of the Columbia Army Air Base. They operated as a training base during World War II, training uh, advanced air combat to fighter and bomber groups, and they had the largest camouflage school in the United States. They also had a POW camp. But in 1944, they changed command and became an advanced combat training base, primarily for trainees graduating from the Tuskegee Army Airfield. So over 500 of the Tuskegee Airmen trained in Walterboro. Wow, I know. And they do have a monument there to the the Tuskegee Airmen, which I, I thought was great. It is great. Uh, it's a, that was a little piece of history that that I found very interesting. I-95 ar- arrived in the 1960s, so that made Walterboro a big overnight stop, a you know potty break, a dinner mm-hmm. break. And so that end of town began to develop more around the interstate. In the South, we all have different festivals. In the Hampton uh, County, it's the Watermelon Festival. In Walterboro, it's the Rice Festival. So every year around the end of April, they hold a big festival. It's been going on for a long, long time. And during this festival, they do operate primarily in that area around the courthouse. They close down some of the streets. They bring in food vendors. They bring in little fairground rides. Um, They they hold a 5K. Uh, Sarah, I want to talk about the food truck situation in in Walterboro. Obviously, hundreds of people showing up for the trial. And the Walterboro Wildlife Center, which is across from the courthouse, will serve as the hub. And local small business owners with food trucks have been requested to help meet the additional influx of people coming into the area for the duration of the trial and they'll be set up in the parking lot next to the Wallerboro Wildlife Center and I don't really understand why there was some people and some broadcasters giving a little heat and throwing a little shade at the community for doing this it's it's something that's that's definitely needed yeah I just didn't fully understand the criticism I get it it's not a festival and no one's really saying that this is a festival but there's going to be a lot of people there and everyone is going to need to eat. I had actually kind of thought about this before they announced these plans that I would have to maybe pack a sandwich or something like that and just eat in my car at lunch. So I'm very thankful that there'll be other options beyond that. Well, if you look at it from an infrastructure perspective, let's say that everyone that's attending this trial, including the attorneys, they get a break that's going to last, let's say, from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock. You have this mass exodus of people leaving the courthouse, getting in their vehicles, driving across town to one of the few options that there are for dining, trying to all get fed within that time frame, and then all getting in their cars and driving back and trying to find somewhere to park. So this just takes all of that out of that picture it is it is a safety thing it is a um you know a a restaurant can only hold so many people they can only serve so many people so it's a timing thing it's a convenience thing and again because they do this so regularly from an infrastructure point of view they have the ability to do it they have the training and the experience to do it 
Walterboro still holds a first Thursday event once a month where they close down Washington Street and the stores that normally close at six o'clock stay open later. They have a band come out. They have the the restaurants open and it's to encourage people to come out and and shop and dine and, and, um, you know, help with the, the businesses on the main street area. So this is that aspect of it. They're doing once a month. The Rice Festival they're doing on a much grander scale once a year. So to me, not only is it a good opportunity for them to bring some vendors in and maybe make some money, but from a safety standpoint and from the uh, standpoint of trying to make sure the court is running on time, that you don't have people straggling in because they couldn't find anywhere to park or they didn't get their food on time or, or whatever like that. It's a way to keep things on target and and running efficiently. Did you actually have a chance to look into the Rice Festival? Is it the Carolina Gold Rice? It is not the Carolina Gold Rice, but I did look into Carolina Gold Rice. Um, it was all over the Low Country, but it kind of died out. And a very short time ago, a couple from Hardyville who were growing rice contacted the the archives. And they actually had some of the Carolina gold rice seeds still kept. And so they let them take those and plant them. And they've they've brought the crop back from that. But I just want, like, I'm really, I'm a culinary person. And this Carolina gold rice is like this. It's a special kind of rice? It's a special kind of rice that all, a lot of the top chefs in the country are using, especially in Charleston. And it's a heritage rice that they just brought back from extinction well, it, really? it was brought it was brought over it was brought over from africa and the slaves that that were brought from africa knew how to to, to plant it to tend it to harvest it to cook with it and so it was another one of the uh wonderful offerings that um came into our culture because of the african slaves who were here um, and then, you know, it, it kind of died out over time. I don't know why. And and then it was recently brought back. And so it's a gourmet thing. You're right. It's the top chefs. That's all they use. I believe it's like a less carbohydrates um, in that rice than it is in regular white rice. Hmm. And it's got that gold color to it. Why isn't uh, you haven't seen me? Dwayne and I rice. It's great, 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 no. Well, I actually have made Carolina gold rice, and I can tell you the best way to make it. So I will, um, I'll, I'll post a link to our Facebook page in Do case it. anyone's interested. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, anything uh, to, to that we have forgotten you want to add, uh, Sarah? No, I just think that, um, you know, we need to show a little bit of grace to the um, to the folks that are running the infrastructure there in Walterboro because. This is absolutely, you know, circus come to town that they didn't ask for. And um, they are doing the best that they can with what they have. Applaud them for it. I think they've handled all of this beautifully to this point. They've done a great job just keeping everyone posted of what's going on. And I think logistically, they're doing a fantastic job. Uh, Sarah, thank you. You are welcome. We'll see you soon. Before we wrap, I do want to offer our condolences to Judge Newman's family who experienced a loss of one of their family members this week. And 
we forgot. Well, I didn't see it, so it's not on me. I'm just kidding. You said you was there a comment about us talking too fast on one of these. Uh, Facebook sleuth groups I'm on, someone on our episode said that we were talked too fast and they usually have to listen to it several times because we talk so fast. And I said, well, you've been up usually since 3.45 in the morning. Yes. I, I don't know why I talk so fast, but I completely forgot to keep that in mind this episode. So if you are listening on, I know Apple does it. I think several of the other may also <laughs> offer those options to listen to it on a slower speed, but I will try to be mindful in the future. Me too. Me too. It's... I don't, I don't know why I uh, talk so fast. I always have. But I'm going to go slower. That's, we always uh, appreciate feedback, good, bad, and different. And you can get to us through the Facebook page, Murdoch Podcast, MurdochPodcast.com, and Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. We will talk soon. While every season is special at Biltmore, there's just something about autumn. It's the perfect time to wander and explore the color-splashed gardens and grounds of Biltmore Estate. Or take a guided cycling tour on a crisp, cool morning. Then toast to the season's fleeting beauty with a complimentary wine tasting. Fall won't last forever. Savor it while you can at Biltmore. Visit now and enjoy a second day free. Learn more at Biltmore.com. Something is creeping. Don't fall asleep. Introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.